Let's pray. Father, as we read your word, may we hear. And Father, as we hear, I pray we will hear God's voice from the inspired words in the book of James. For to the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. As we begin our, as we continue our journey through the book of James, we're looking today at four realities pertaining to trials. Now, we've embarked upon this journey, and we've seen that the book of James was written to believers. We've seen in verses 1 through 4, the radical view of trials. Count it all joy as you endure trials, and endurance will lead to maturity. And then in verses 5 through 8, another part of, of the radical view of trials, ask God in faith for wisdom to endure the trials. Now on the screen, we have what I believe to be our main point for today. Our view of trials and temptations must be guided by God's eternal perspective. When when we endure hard and difficult times, we're forced to rely on what we know about God and His perspective pertaining to trials. Now on the screen, there's a picture of one of the ugliest creatures in the ocean. But they can produce some of the most beautiful and costly products known. The lowly oyster can produce a beautiful coveted gem called a pearl. Now this jewel is only accomplished through the process that is neither pleasant nor comfortable. An irritating grain of sand gets inside the oyster, makes its way between the shell and the body of the oyster. The oyster produces a coating to go around to kind of uh, take care of that irritation. And over time, over time between six months and four years, layer upon layer, this protective substance starts building up around this irritant. After the allotted period of time, the one-time irritant is now complete and is harvested as a perfect, beautiful, one-of-a-kind pearl. After enduring various trials, which are irritants in our life at times, we endure them, and we ask God in faith for wisdom to help us endure these trials. The final outcome leads to a perfect and complete life, and we lack nothing as we live for God. We now continue our journey toward the trials as we consider the four realities pertaining to trials. Reality number one. All believers will endure trials regardless of rank or riches. Again, look with me at at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 9 looks like James is going on a tangent with a different thought in mind. But in reality, James is continuing and connecting trials through two illustrations, poor believers and rich believers. The context of this part of James points us to to, uh, the fact that these believers, that these are believers and not just random people. Some people seem to think that these are just random people, but I don't because the context of the book of James is written to believers. These people are said to boast in their position. 
the poor to boast in their high position, the rich to boast in their humiliation. So as we look at the poor believer for a second, the poor find themselves dissatisfied, discouraged, and deficient in their needs being met. These believers were under intense persecution, and many had fled, leaving their homes and all their property and land behind. James is writing to encourage them as they go through trials and to see trials from God's perspective. The poor and the mistreated had been taken advantage of so many times. So God is using trials to develop their character. As he said in verse 4, endurance, when it is, has its full effect, will make you completely mature. God is sovereignly in control. It's interesting how Luke records the words of Jesus as he spoke the Beatitudes. For he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's very possible that James might have been thinking of this, these words as he writes, those of humble circumstances are poor, is to boast in their high position. The poor were financially destitute and looked down on. I find the words of the Latin scholar, scholar Muritus very powerful. Call no man worthless for whom Christ died. Society lifts up the haves and puts down the have-nots. James is telling these believers to not evaluate themselves by the standards the world is using. James says, enough, stop. Poor believers, boast in the fact that God has exalted you for your heirs, joint heirs, with Jesus Christ. Now, even though the poor had things really bad, I think the rich may have had it even worse. For in rich believers, you know, Christianity has brought to the poor a new sense of value, but to the rich, it brings a new sense of self-abasement, or the, as the ESV says, humiliation. This means that the person who had once bragged about all that he has, all the security he has in his financial state, is now brought low to the reality given to us by Christ in the Gospel of Mark. Where he says, if anyone would come after me, let him die himself, take up his cross and follow me. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? The rich has a false sense of security because he believes he has resources to cope with any and all circumstances and can by himself, by himself, get out of any situation that life may bring. Now remember, we talked about the fact that James is steeped very deeply in Old Testament writings. On the screen, we have a writing from Isaiah chapter 40, which I believe he had in mind when he wrote these verses. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. James's illustration is that of the southeast wind that comes from the desert after a nice gentle rain comes through and you see new shoots of green coming up out of the ground. And then all of a sudden the southeast wind comes and wipes out any vegetation that has sprouted as a result of the rains. And I thought, how in the world can we really understand that? So those of you that have ever done any cooking and baking... Have you ever went to the oven and you go to take out what's in there, you open that oven, what happens? Whoosh! That big blast of hot air. It makes you wonder, wow, do I have any eyebrows left, you know? 
this is the kind of the picture here. The hot wind comes and destroys all that you think is stable. A life that is dependent on riches is a life that trusts in things that are quickly taken away by the chances and changes of life. Life is uncertain, and we see here that quote from Isaiah 40. He also might have had Psalms 103 in mind. Listen to these words. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and his place knows it no more. Not only is life uncertain, but man is so vulnerable that the calamity and disaster of trials come and wipe out any of our so-called stability you have. The prophet Jeremiah had a lot to say about this. On the screen, we have Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Notice that these, ver this, these verses in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, uses the word boast or glory four times. The prophet Jeremiah used it four times. James is, is encouraging all believers to admit their helpless and hopeless state and to put their trust in God, who alone can give them that which abides forever. For as the words say, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. American society is obsessed with materialistic things. Now, I don't have a TikTok uh, account, but if you ever look at Facebook very much, you know that TikTok videos come up quite often. And it seems like every other video you see, it's all about stuff of life and how to make more money, more, 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 more. You're never content with what you have. Listen, I promise you, God will never, ever, ever, ever let his people go without their needs being met. I promise you that. If your possessions or even the lack thereof is why you live every day and have become a person of, you've become a person of idolatry and worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Whether you're rich or have a rank in life that puts you at the bottom of the barrel. All believers, all believers should and must accept from God the things they cannot change. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. As we sung a few minutes ago, my soul is satisfied in him alone. So our first reality, all believers will suffer trials regardless of their rank or riches. That brings us to our second reality. All believers will be rewarded if they persevere through trials. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Here, we have a verse that sounds similar to the Beatitudes given by Jesus in the Gospels. It begins with the word blessed. I like what comment, the commentator Douglas Moose says in his commentary on James. The person who is blessed may not be happy at all. Our emotional state 
may and will vary with the circumstances in life. Rest assured that if we endure these circumstances with faith and commitment to God, we will be recipients of God's favor. Trials are not fun, and usually it's not the time to throw a trial party. You know, yay, I'm going through trials. But when going through trials, as verse 2 says, consider it all joy. Listen, sometimes trials and temptations bring times of darkness, times of tears, long, lonely nights where your pillows are stained with tears. It's hard to consider something joy when all you know is that constant nagging pain, persistent agonizing pain. The pain can be physical. The pain can be emotional. The pain can be spiritual. It's during these times that our joy seems to go out the window. Think of the disciples as they tried to go to sleep and rest on the night after Jesus was crucified. I probably think it probably wasn't going to happen. Or how about the dark nights that King David spent in conviction over his sin of adultery and murder? I think of the many times I wondered while Karen was in the hospital if the next day would allow me to see her again. It wasn't until the resurrection that the disciples could experience true joy in what Jesus had accomplished for them. It wasn't until a year had passed that King David was confronted by, with his sin by the prophet Nathan. That David bowed and prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a free, willing spirit. And it wasn't until I received that call in the hospital, from the hospital on July 7th, 2021, that I cried tears of joy as I thanked God for answering the prayers of healing the love of my life, Karen. As the psalmist says, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. James tells us that the believer that endures under and through trials will have a blessed life. But as this verse says, we are blessed if we persevere and are approved. Now that word approved talks of the strength and quality of a believer's faith. Perseverance in trials demonstrates the genuineness of a believer's faith. Approved faith is a genuine faith. We might look at it as being authentic, an authentic faith. Think about it this way. If I was to hold up a red can of soda and it said on there Coca-Cola, what does that mean? You can say it. it's the real thing. Remember that? Or what if you buy a new package of software or download a package of software and you see a hologram with the name Microsoft on it? What does that mean? It's the real thing. It's authentic. Why is this important that our faith is genuine? Because it verifies the quality and value of our faith, which is backed up by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit and was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It not only verifies the, va the quality and value of our faith, but it verifies the authenticity of our faith. Our faith is the same faith that Peter, James, and John, along with all the other disciples, exemplified. The fact of this faith being reported as true and accurate, both in the infallible, inerrant word of God, as well as through testimony in history, proves that faith is genuine. How is the genuineness of our faith determined? Through trials and temptations. If you buy a new lamp and you see UL approved on it, that means that there's a whole industry 
dedicated to testing products for safety and genuineness. Before you purchase a, something big like maybe a car, washer, dryer, refrigerator, something like that, you might pick up a, a custom Consumer Reports magazine. Why? Because they have a pretty good track record of testing the products. And they can say, these products are good, they're authentic. How do we apply this to the spiritual side of faith? If faith had not been tested, it cannot be trusted because it has not been proven to be genuine. I think of Abraham as he was tested by God as to the genuineness of his faith. In Genesis 22, we find that it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains I will show you. Now remember, Isaac was the promised son to Abraham and Sarah he had waited so long for. Abraham loved him dearly. We know that Abraham fulfilled the test, for in verse 12, we see these words. Do not lay your hand on the boy, or do not do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God tested Abraham's faith. But not only did God know the genuineness of Abraham's faith, but Abraham himself understood his own faith to be genuine. I think of the Gospels in John 6 where we see 5,000 people that are hungry and tired with no food. I like what verse 6 says. He said to them to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus told his disciples, take care of it. The Bible says Peter went around and found a little boy that had loaves and fishes. Jesus blessed it, divided it, and gave it to the disciples to feed the multitude. The believer is tested by the fires of trials and temptations, just as gold is purified by fire. The outcome of the testing is more precious and worth than fine gold in our lives. What type of believer do you want to be? A 10-carat believer or a 24-carat believer? The difference is that one is much more valuable than the other. God turns up the heat in our lives. If we're to become the purest of the pure, the fire of trials and temptations have to be hotter than the hottest so that the impurities can be removed from our lives and can shine forth as pure gold. And therefore, we can give glory to our Father. When the believer's faith has been tested and approved, James tells us that God will reward the believer with a crown of life. This is our reward for being approved. There's a lot that comes with having a crown. Now, for the believer, I see two rewards here. Number one, the reward of good character. This life reveals a believer that is of highest and greatest worth to God. The weakness of our character is strengthened, and we emerge strong and pure. You take iron. It feels pretty strong. It's heavy. But in and, of, in and of itself, it's brittle until you put it in a fire above 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit. And after a process of doing this, you get steel. The character of steel is hard, tough, strong. And this is important. It's able to be shaped without breaking or losing its toughness. So when we go through trials and temptations and we endure them and persevere, our faith, can be, it's strong, it's hard, it's tough, and it can, we can be shaped 
without breaking. But the second reward we see here in our text, he said it will give you a crown of life. A crown that brings joy that no others can have. A crown that signifies a royal priesthood that others will never realize. A crown that shows victory that others cannot win. And a crown that brings dignity that others can never attain. The reward will be either be given at death or at the, at the coming of Jesus Christ. We're promised life everlasting as a believer. James's use here is a crown that consists of life. A new kind of living takes place once you go on that side of on to eternity. It's a new type of living. It's a, a living for an approved believer, an authentic believer. We enter into a life that is truly more abundant and a life that is beyond any comprehension of joy. The struggle of trials is the way to glory as well as the struggle is in itself glory. But that leads us to our third reality. Sometimes as a person that preaches the word of God, you come across texts that sometimes are very hard, very strong. And here we have such verses from the book of James. In these verses, James began using a different term. In verse 13, he uses the word tempted instead of trial. In reality, the word test or trial in verse 12 is the same word in verses 13 and 14, tempted. James links these two together by transitioning from trial to temptation. What's the difference? Well, as we've seen, God will test a believer. This test or trial is of external nature. It comes from the outside. But every trial, every test, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation which is an inner enticement to sin. There's three thoughts I want us to think about in this reality. Thought number one, verses 13 and 14, the origin of temptation. Look at verse 13 with me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God may bring or allow trials but James emphatically says in verse 13, God is not the author of temptation. God may test or try the believer, but never, ever, never tempts the believer to sin. I read of a man that was struggling as he tried to stick to his new diet. And one day he had to go downtown and he realized as he started on his journey that his route was going to take him right by his favorite donut shop uh-oh well don't judge yet let's see but as he got closer he thought well you know a cup of coffee would really hit the spot but then he remembered his diet and then the story goes on says he prayed something like this lord if you want me to stop for a donut and coffee let there be a parking place in front of the shop as he was telling his story, he said, well, sure enough, I found a parking place right in front of the shop on my seventh trip around the block. <laughs> That's not how you deal with temptation in your life, my friend. 
One writer wrote in Reader's Digest, most people want to be delivered from temptation, but would like the temptation to keep in touch. A believer has the choice to nourish temptation or stifle the temptation by the grace of God and through the asking of God for wisdom to endure the temptation. One can encourage desire long enough that it eventually becomes action. Believers have got to learn to recognize and overcome temptation. Kind of like one time when Edith and Archie Bunker were having this argument and Edith turns around and surprised Archie and says, stifle, stifle, stifle. Listen, we've got to learn in our life when temptation comes, stifle. God tests the believer to reveal their true character. James 1 14 clearly teaches that temptation comes from within the person because of indwelling sin and Satan. A trial can also become a temptation to sin. Since the beginning of man's time on earth, he has been passing the buck when it comes to taking responsibility for their own sins. I think of Exodus 32 where we see uh, Moses had been up in the mountain and Aaron uh, had made this golden calf and Moses comes down out of the mountain and confronts Moses, Moses comes down and confronts Aaron about the golden calf and the idolatrous worship that was taking place. And he said, what did the people do to you, causing you to bring such great sin upon them? And then Aaron turned around and said, you know the people yourself. They're prone to evil. They said, make us a god. I said to them, let any of you that has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and poof, out came this calf. That's a lame excuse. It sounds silly. But it's the way we sound to God when we try to blame others for that which is within us. Again, look at verse 13 with me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not the origin of temptation. Some people go as far to blame God for sin since he's sovereign over all and has predestined everything before the foundation of the world. You know, when a young couple, a couple gets, uh, they're dating and things go a little bit too far. And the young lady ends up pregnant, out of wedlock. Why did God allow my girlfriend to get pregnant? Why did he allow me to marry that person? Both of those illustrations, it comes from within, a desire that you acted upon. Our circumstances tend to lead us to rebel against God, whereby we doubt his goodness and his love for us. Some blame God that he made them a certain way. What could I do? What could I do? God could have stopped me. It's not my fault. Just the way I am. John Calvin says that when Scripture says God blinds or hardens one's heart, it does not assign to God the beginning of the blindness, nor does it make him the author of sin as ascribing to him the blame. But Calvin goes on, and I quote, He punishes sin and renders a just reward to the ungodly who have refused to be ruled by his spirit. James nails it on the head in verse 13. 
God cannot be tempted by evil. Why? Because of God's holy nature. John said in 1 John, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. The prophet Habakkuk says, God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and he cannot look on wickedness with favor. God cannot be tempted by evil, so he does not tempt anyone and is not the origin of temptation. But in verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, later on in the book of James, in this letter, he mentions that the devil is the source of temptation. But we'll unpack that later when we get there. But here is where James is focusing on the primary enemy, our own evil desires. Jesus put it this way in Matthew for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. As we try to blame others, God, Satan, or even our circumstances for our sin, we're dodging the real origin or source of sin. Labeling it as a, as a disease absolves us of our responsibility for sin. Sin comes from our own sinful desires. Some translate the word as lust in verse 15 it mean literally means desire here it's a sinful desire but there are times when a desire is legitimate take for instance when you're hungry or thirsty that's a legitimate desire but in order to satisfy that hunger or thirst you steal in order to fulfill that desire then it's a sinful desire it's a sinful thing God created humans with a strong desire for sex. But to try to fulfill that desire outside of the commitment and covenant of marriage between one woman and one man is sin. For Jesus said to lust after a woman is the same as committing adultery. And some people say, well, what about Jesus' temptation? Remember, all trials, all trials, Trials carry with it a temptation, an inner desire to act in sin. Jesus' temptation, as seen in the Gospels, came from without. As God in the flesh, Jesus had no inclination or desire towards sin like you and I. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. By one man's disobedience, the many were made to be sinners. All sinful desires come from sinful hearts that were inherited from Adam. Salvation brings us a new way to deal with temptations, but does not eradicate our sinful nature. We died to sin through Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross. On the screen, we see the words from Paul in Romans 6. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself to, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. God is not the origin of temptation, and temptation comes from our evil desires. 
But verse 15 tells us temptation always begins in the mind of the heart. On the screen, we have the words from Jesus on Mark 7, 21 to 23. From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness. That is obscenity. An evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. One may ask, well, how do we combat the sinful thoughts that come into our minds? You see it, you think about it, and then you either act on the temptation or you put on Christ and make total provision for the flesh. That's how you do it. You ask God for wisdom and faith that he will help you endure the temptation, verse 5 tells us in this chapter. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now catch these words, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul is encouraging Timothy to not only flee passions and pursue faith, love, and righteousness, but also he says find an accountability partner that will help you. Temptations will come, and they're not all just unique to you and I. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, Our weapons are not of the flesh and have the divine power to destroy strongholds, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. If you think on a temptation long enough, sooner or later, Satan will present the hour to opportunity to sin. And then, guess what? You fall. In fact, the sin of pride lead us to say, how could you do such a thing? That same pride excuses our weakness. That's just the way I am. They're just excuses, my friend. You know what? Excuses are kind of like belly buttons. Everybody's got one, but what good are they? Each person is different and is tempted by different things. Yielding to particular sins becomes a point of vulnerability for future temptation. I could be left in a room full of free adult beverages, and I would not be tempted to indulge myself because that's just something I never got into. Now, before I make my next point, guys, gentlemen, the most beautiful creature God ever created was woman, right? Oh, come on, you can do better than that, guys. Says the guy over here who just got engaged recently, you know. Guys, the most beautiful creature God ever created was woman, right? There you go. Listen, because I'm now single, it would not be wise for me to go to a place that was all ladies because the temptation to lust might rear its ugly head. Ladies, same thing goes for you. Whether you're single or married, it doesn't matter. If you struggle with lust, is it wise to go to a place where the women or the men are clothed provocatively? Ladies, you have the same choice as us. Because verse 15 says again, I remind you, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Young people, teenagers, do not, do not put yourself in a position that makes it easy to be tempted. 
in my days at Trinity College, when I went to Trinity College, they had a somewhat simple solution for that. Sometimes it didn't work, but they had what you call a six-inch rule. All guys and gals had to be six inches apart at all times, regardless. And if you became a couple, then when we went to chapel or somewhere where the, you know, a lot of people and the seats were crowded, there had to be two seats between you and the person that you were coupled with. You know, at that time, I thought, how stupid, how silly. Don't they trust us? Young people, you say that. Don't, we trust, don't you trust us? You want me to be honest? No. Do I trust me? No. Well, you need to answer that question for you. Do you trust you? Recognize the origin of temptation, our own sinful nature. That leads us to the second thought, the process of temptation. Again, verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings birth, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, wise parents do not let their children play with dangerous things. Here, take this stick of dynamite and go do your science experiment. That's a powerful, destructive thing. Would you intentionally let your kids play with anything that this powerful, destructive? Of course not. Then let me ask a question. Why is there so much in our society today as a whole? Why is there so much unsupervised time with social media, TV, movies, video games, etc., etc., etc.? The enemy is not outside, but inside. I read the story of a pastor who was relating the story of a 78-year-old believer. And this gentleman, the 78-year-old believer, was on a trip to a city where he realized he was going to have to park and walk through what's known as a red light district. Now, for some of you younger people, that means nothing to you. A red light district in my day was a type place where there was a lot of prostitution, pornography stores, massage parlors, and things of this nature, okay? So he stopped his car. He prayed that God would protect him from temptation as he walked past all the pornography stores and massage parlors. And the pastor then interrupted the older believer. He said, you're 78 years old. Are you telling me you're worried about sexual temptations at your age? And after all these years of walking with the Lord... The older believer looked at him and said, Son, just because I'm old doesn't mean the blood doesn't flow through my veins. The difference between we old men and you young men is this. We know we are sinners. We have had plenty of experience. You kids just haven't figured it out yet. This believer knew that the powerful enemy still lived within him even though he was of advanced age. One author uses the analogy that we carry about within ourselves a lot of flammable material. If we're not careful, temptation will strike a spark and cause a great explosion in our heart. Calvin said, John Calvin said that James' James's object is to teach us that there is in us a root of our own destruction. Our own destruction. Do not make the mistake of thinking that as a believer... Your sinful nature has been eradicated. Or do not ignore the fact that temptation begins inside of us. Temptation is deceptive. 
For in verse 16, look at verse 16. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, I mean verse 14, I'm sorry. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now that word lured in verse 14 is the picture of it as a hunter setting a trap to catch an animal. And the word enticed is a picture of a fisherman baiting a hook to lure a fish. Now I can honestly say as a person that's had many, many years of experience as a very successful fisherman, as I was growing up through the years in Georgia, every, just about every weekend and sometimes through the week when my dad had time off, we would go fishing in Lake Eufaula. I can honestly say that the only way to catch fish legally, and I emphasize legally, is to bait your hook that will lure the fish to the place where he thinks he has a meal. But in reality, the fish gets hooked and is carried away eventually, in that case, to my frying pan. Temptations like that. We think sin will satisfy and give us something good. But the truth is, we get hooked and drugged into destruction. God's word is sure and a steady guide for us to follow because it will always lead us toward God's grace, God's mercy, and God's steadfast love. Yielding to temptation depends upon a feeling which always leads to sin. Remember the process of temptation. But then the third thought, the conclusion of temptation. Again, look at verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, which fully grown, brings forth death. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James is teaching us that temptation is never stationary. It's always moving in a course toward the ultimate hideous end, death, and destruction. The words used by James means that sin spawns death. This death that we see here as a result of following temptation stands in complete contrast to verse 12, the crown of life. Two totally different destinies. At the first, the two paths seem small, a little small fork in the road, no big deal until you follow each path to its ultimate end. Perseverance leads to life. Yielding to temptation leads to death. Open, blamelet, blatant, continuous sin in the life of a believer can lead to death. For Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, says, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Paul also goes on to tell these believers at Corinth that because you're continually sinning, not obeying God, and living in a way that is not pleasing to God, many of you are ill, weak, and dead. Frank Outlaw, on the screen, he was the late president of Bilo Stores, said this. I love this quote. Watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. These are great words to consider. The conclusion of temptation is death and deception. That's why in verse 16 he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Recognize the deception. Recognize the bait. That looks so exciting, so fulfilling, something you cannot live without. 
What's something that you think you just can't live without? Something that seems so exciting you just can't live without? How about TV? Just can't wait till I get home. Can't that preacher shut up and, and end so I can get home and watch football? Or I've got to just go watch the rest of my story. How about you can't just go through a part of the day without your phone, you know, looking at your phone. Now, there's nothing wrong with using your phone in church to look at the Bible. But my friend, if you are tempted to kind of stop, tune the preacher out and tune the Bible out, start like, well, I wonder what's on my Facebook or who messaged me or who did this. That is a temptation. And listen, if that's a temptation, then I encourage you, shut your phone off, put it in your pocket or beside you, and bring a real Bible or get the one under the pew in front of you and use a real Bible to follow along. If that's a temptation for you. Some people, temptation is food. Some people, temptation is drugs or alcohol or illicit relationships outside the bond of God-ordained marriage. Take the bait that's put before you, and you'll be snared by the hidden hook that leads to drastic consequences, death, deception, and destruction. All believers are tempted because of our own sinful nature. That leads us to our fourth reality, verses 17 and 18. All believers will receive good gifts from our good Father. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Two thoughts here. One, God is good because of his character. The enemy is not outside, but inside. Not outside, but inside. God gives every good and perfect gift. This alone proves that God cannot be the one who tempts us. For it would be contrary to his very nature as a good father. God knows that each individual needs, he knows what your needs are, and he supplies those needs through any means he deems appropriate and necessary for the individual believer and for their growth to maturity. Listen, creation itself is a very good gift. If you go back to the account in Genesis, God said God created the heavens and the earth, God created light, and, and he created the animals and the plants, and all the down got to man, created man. And every time he created something, it said it was good. In the end, it said, God said, it is very good. As we begin these last verses, we see James repeating himself by a very interesting literary style, combining parallelism with a Greek poetic form. There's no difference between a good thing given and a perfect gift. It's interesting, the word perfect is one of James's favorite words. So the nuance of that word is the word mature. We see it in, verse, in the, uh, verses 2 through 4, it talks about it there. But verse 17 ties back to verses 2 through 4 with the idea that trials are one of God's good and perfect gifts to make us perfect or mature. When we endure the pressure of trials, God uses them to produce spiritual maturity, which is conforming us to the image 
of Jesus Christ. James shows us God's power through his creative character. The Bible says here he is the father of lights, referring to God as the creator of all light. Light stands for that which is good, in contrast to the evil brought about Satan and his dark domain. We also see God's power through his unchangeable nature. It says there is no variation or shadow of turning. God does not vary in his essential nature, which is light. On earth, there are times when clouds or storms hide the sunlight, they hinder the sunlight from reaching earth in its full brightness. But just because you cannot see the sun, does that mean it's still not shining? No, it's still shining. During the dark days of trials and temptations, it seems like there's no light. But God in his goodness never leaves and never ceases to give the good and perfect gifts to his children. He is immutable, unchanging. God's goodness through God's character. The second thing we see is God proves his goodness in the gift of redemption. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of a first fruits to his creatures. Trials are used by Satan to make you doubt God's goodness and God's sovereignty and God's nature. We must cling to both in order to stand firm through trials. The greatest gift given to us by God is our redemption. Since God is sovereign in our redemption, he will not abandon us when we face trials. But Paul says in Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There are two realities within this reality, very briefly. Number one, redemption is a work of God's will and God's power. For the first part of verse 18 says, and I call your attention there again, says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's not by the exercising of our free will that we're redeemed, but by God's will through the gospel, the word of truth. God didn't ask Adam and Eve about their preference for the clothing that was going to be used to cover their nakedness, their sin. God's sovereign plan was the shedding of blood from animals to cover them and ultimately the all-sufficient sacrifice of Messiah by the seed of woman to take away the sins of the world, Genesis 3.15. Sinners are spiritually blinded by Satan so they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. When Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus didn't sit in that tomb wondering, should I go out or just stay here? The Bible teaches us he came not of his own will, but the will of God through Jesus Christ, who is both God and Lord. When God, Jesus called, Lazarus came. Jesus tells us to repent and believe the gospel. We respond in faith to the call of God because of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Redemptive work is a work of God's will and power. But believers are an example of God's redemptive purpose. Look at the last part of verse 18 again. 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We as believers are first fruits. That's the Old Testament reference that God's people brought to him, the first portion of the harvest as a thank offering. God claimed ownership of the firstborn males who had to be redeemed. He owns us, and because of that, he is free to use us as he wills. We are brought, we are bought with a price, the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. We present ourselves to God as a thank offering to use as he wishes. As his first fruits, we are to bear fruit for him. As John says, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. This fruit comes as we endure trials that come our way. When we endure to the end, we can be joyful because our faith has been approved and we lack nothing to be what God wants us to be. The famous words from Romans 8 from the Apostle Paul, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers to whom he predestined, he also called. To those he called, he also justified. And to those he justified, he also glorified. Verse 18 ends with the first fruits of his creatures. We are an example to all of creation. And that ultimate redemption will take place by God's will and God's power. And on that day, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. On that day when Jesus takes his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. So four realities pertaining to trials. All believers will suffer trials regardless of rank or riches. It's our sovereign God does what is necessary to make the believer depend on God. The poor are exhausted, exalted. The rich are humiliated or brought low. All believers will be rewarded if they persevere through trials. It's our sovereign God will always reward a believer whose character has been approved through trials, the crown of life. All believers will be tempted because of their sinful nature. Our sovereign God will test a believer but will never act contrary to his holy nature. God does not tempt any man. And the fourth reality again, all believers will receive good gifts from our good Father. Our sovereign God will send the good gift of trials to mature the believer and to glorify his name. So we are the first fruits of God's creation. Four brief applications. Application number one. Let me encourage you before we look at these, be content where God has placed you. Do not try to endure trials on your own. Application number one, seek God's wisdom in his word by memorizing specific scriptures to help endure trials and temptations. If you need help with that, come ask one of the elders. We'll be glad to help you. Application number two, Depend on God's strength to resist temptation. Put on Christ. Number three, application number three. Determine your specific areas of vulnerability and adopt an accountability partner. A person that's trusted 
who will ask the hard questions while holding you accountable, you're more than welcome to ask the elders for help with accountability. We'll be more than happy to help you with that. In fact, even us elders meet every so often just for accountability among ourselves. And the last, and this is very, very important, do not place yourself in a position that allows you to access the bait of temptation. Let's pray together. Lord, we are your people. Create within our hearts a spirit of contentment. I pray we will always rely on your good nature, your faithfulness, to make a way of escape so we can endure the trials and temptations that come to us on a daily basis. For it's in the name of Christ Jesus, who is both God and Lord, that we pray. Amen.